Well, welcome again. It's good to see all of you. I want you to think about the last time someone asked you to do something and you really didn't want to do it. What was the last time someone asked a favor of you? Maybe your boss came to you at work and she said to you, like, I've got a project for you. And you went, really? Because I didn't have enough work going on already. When's the last time someone asked something of you that you weren't thrilled that you got to do? Just picture that for just a moment. There was an artist in the 16th century who was asked to do something that he did not want to do. He was famous as a sculptor, but he was asked to paint a pretty important place. And many of you may have visited there. This is the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City of Rome. How many of you have been here before? I went uh, in the year 2000 with my grandparents. It was an incredible experience. The Sistine Chapel, when you walk up to it, it's not much to look at. It's a very simple kind of brown stone building in the middle of Vatican City. But when you walk inside, you are just struck by the awe and the splendor of what you're seeing. The sculptor, the artist, Michelangelo, was commissioned by the Vatican right around the year 1500 to paint the ceiling, then the frescoes of this amazing chapel. And he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. He said, hey, I'm a sculptor. Why are you asking me to paint? I have this project that I'm really interested in. But in the 1500s, when the Vatican comes to you and tells you to do something, you probably are going to do it, right? Like, this, this is going to happen. Uh, contrary to myth, uh, Michelangelo did not paint laying on his back, looking up at the ceiling. They actually built a scaffolding for him such that he was painting like this for several years. The total square footage on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, what would you guess? Throw out a number. Anybody want to guess what the square footage is? A little higher. Yeah. Michelangelo painted over 5,000 square feet of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, so bigger than this room. So picture up above us, beautiful paintings, frescoes depicting scenes from the life of Jesus and the Genesis accounts of creation and, because it's the Vatican, a history of the popes. Those are all on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And if you've been there, you've experienced this. You walk in, you know you're in the presence of something incredible. There's no way to just sort of walk up to the Sistine Chapel and accidentally be there. There's signs directing you there, the Vatican itself, there's a whole ordeal to get into the city. So it's a significant undertaking. When you walk in, you are struck by the power of what's in front of you. Here's another detail of it. The intricacy of the figures, the, the cloth, the, the drapery, all of these elements that are depicted in painting just feel like you can just reach out and touch them, except for the fact that they're a couple hundred feet above you. It's an incredible moment to walk in and see something so beautiful right before your eyes. And it really, it, this is not a cliche, it does take your breath away. I was an 18-year-old fresh out of high school kid, and it took my breath away to see the Sistine Chapel, to be in that room. Today's scripture reading is a moment when something more glorious and more beautiful and more powerful than even one of the most amazing works of art has broken into our reality. The scholarly term for this is the transfiguration. This is where Jesus is filled with the power of God, where it's literally like the holiness and the majesty of God is radiating through his being. And it's an amazing miracle. It's an amazing moment. But what we're going to do today is we're going to ask ourselves the question, why did this happen? 
What's the purpose? Why would God's Son, why would Messiah present Himself in this way? Did He need to show off for people? Did He need to kind of demonstrate the fireworks He was capable of? And what I believe we're going to discover today is that the transfiguration points us toward the theme that we've been talking about throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, and that theme is hope. Would you say that with me? Hope. Jesus came to bring hope to oppressed, beat-down people in the ancient Near East living under Roman rule, and he came to bring them hope. We'll talk about what hope means in our context today, but I want to give you our outline first. Our outline goes like this. We're going to talk about the context, what's happening around today's passage, and then we're going to talk about how this message of hope revealed through the transfiguration touches the past and the present and the future. The past, the present, and the future. That's where we're going today. So first, let's kind of set the context. We've been talking about Mark's gospel, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. In Mark's gospel, we find kind of sparse details. Mark's gospel is the shortest of all the gospel accounts. It's the one with kind of the least fluffy language. Most scholars believe it was the earliest written account, probably around A.D. 70. And what had started to happen was those people who knew Jesus, who walked with him, who were present with him, they had started to pass away, as people tend to do. As they got further and further away from the actual day of the resurrection, the people of the church, the people who were forming this movement around Jesus started to realize, we got to start writing stuff down. We're going to lose these stories. And so John Mark, that's his proper name, but the author of this gospel, Mark, was the first to attempt to do this. We've learned that Mark's gospel is kind of divided into two halves. So the first half is chapters 1 through 8. The second half is where we are today, 9 through 16. The first half is this long kind of revealing of who Jesus is, that he's fully God and fully human. The crescendo, the top of the hill of that first half is what we talked about last week when Peter confesses Christ, when he says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Everything's been building up to that moment when Peter offers that insight. And we'll talk about Peter in just a minute because he's an important character in today's story too. Today we begin the second half of the Gospel of Mark with the transfiguration. Right before this, Peter has confessed. Then he and Jesus have this kind of sharp exchange. They kind of get into it with one another. There's a few kind of barbs thrown between them. Right after today's passage, Jesus continues the second half of Mark's gospel where he's on a journey to Jerusalem. The second half of Mark's gospel is almost like a long walk toward Jerusalem. Because what is going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to be celebrated in one minute, which we'll talk about next week with Palm Sunday. And in the very next minute, he's going to be put on trial, and he's going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, and he's going to be arrested in the garden, and he's going to be hung on a cross, and he's going to be killed. Those are all coming quickly. So that's the context. That sets us up for what happens today, which is this transfiguration. This is one of the most popular depictions in all of Christian artwork. Jesus with the light shining from him, with the disciples around him, and then with these three figures— these two figures, excuse me, Moses and Elijah. So now we're going to talk about the past, because the past comes into play anytime we talk about hope, okay? So one of the definitions we've been working on with hope comes from our friend Dallas Willard. Hope is the joyous anticipation of good. You're expecting good to come. You're hoping for something good around the corner, and it's not yet here. You don't, I mean, this is uh, later expressed, I believe it's in the book of Hebrews, who hopes for what is seen? You hope for what you cannot yet see. 
So we hope for a new job. We hope for a turn in the weather. We hope for an end to the war in Ukraine. We hope for these things because they are yet unseen. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of all the hopes of the people of the Old Testament, the people who were waiting through 400 years of silence. We have the fulfillment in him. But Mark's gospel is very deliberate in revealing that slowly over time. The aspect of hope that I want to touch on in this section is you can't hope for things that are not rooted to the past. Christian hope is uniquely rooted in God's promises from the past. We can hope that God will fulfill the things that he has said he has done. Case in point is what happens here with Elijah and Moses. There's two ways that the transfiguration touches on this theme of the past. To know the past is to be able to properly hope for the future. Let's look at one of them. This is actually the account of the transfiguration itself. The text says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. That word transfigured is metamorpho, where we get the English word metamorphosis, right? So butterfly, or excuse me, caterpillar becomes a butterfly, like that term. This is also used throughout the New Testament to refer to just the simple word transformation. The uniqueness of this term is it only happens four times in the entire New Testament, all associated with this moment of Jesus's life. And so if you're reading this, you're going, Jesus was transfigured. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Mark is kind enough to answer that question in the very next verse. His clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth can bleach them. Meaning, this is a supernatural event. This is a power and a brightness and a glory that is beyond anything that a human being could come up with. It's like Mark is telling his readers, like, you can't fathom how bold and bright and beautiful this moment was. But Mark isn't just talking about what's happening now. He's hearkening back to a promise that was made centuries before. This is from the prophet Daniel. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one, this is an Old Testament term for Messiah, an ancient one took his throne, and his clothing was as white as snow. And the hair of his head was pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, his wheels were burning fire. He's describing a king who is coming to set people free. And the prophet declared, these are the markers of that king. This is what you should expect to see when that king comes. And we see it in today's text, that his clothing is as white as snow. Now, did the disciples sitting around with Jesus in the moment go like, huh, I think you're quoting Daniel? Maybe. Some of them may have known their Old Testament really, really well. These were Jewish men. Maybe they didn't, but we do. We are able to look back and stitch together these pieces because hope, as we are learning, is grounded in your understanding of the past. If you know that God has promised through the prophet Daniel that one day the ancient one, one day Messiah will come, and one of the ways that you'll know it's Messiah is his clothing. This is a powerful force moving into your heart, moving into your very being. Go, wait, 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 hold on. This is bigger than anything that I've seen before now. The second piece that touches on the past is the very presence of Elijah and Moses. And Mark, being very sparse on details, simply says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. No stage directions, right? Like, no, like, enter stage right. Here comes Moses and Elijah. What's happening here? The image I want you to have in your head is of a relay race, like a track and field relay race and a baton being handed off. N.T. Wright, a Bible commentator, explains it this way. Elijah and Moses were vital in preparing the way. Press pause. How did Elijah and Moses prepare the way? 
Elijah was a prophet. He was declaring what God would do to free God's people. He has a whole book of the Bible that I would encourage you to read declaring a prophetic vision of freedom and justice and the righteousness that is coming through Yahweh. Moses is one of the greatest leaders, if not the greatest leader of the Old Testament. He led his people. He brought them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. All these amazing moments from his life. What has happened is a slow journey toward freedom, beginning with Elijah and Moses, that is now being fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is finishing the job. He's finishing the job that Moses and Elijah began. So I love track and field, so it brings me great joy to have this picture up here today. This is from the Rio de Janeiro Olympics in 2016. On the left is Allison Felix, on the right is English Gardner. Uh, Fun trivia fact, uh, English Gardner, the woman running on the right, she is wearing a pair of borrowed track shoes in this race. She got to the race, this is the four by 100 meter relay. She got to the race, she looked in her bag, and she only had one of her shoes. And she turned to her teammate, Allison Felix, who's a pro. This was one of her final Olympic moments. And she tells her about the shoe, and Allison Felix goes, it's okay, I have a spare pair. And she gave her her spare pair of shoes, and it fit her almost perfectly, perfectly enough to win a gold medal. And so this is the handoff. If you've run track and field, you know this is one of the most delicate moments in the sport. I mean, look at the poise. Look at how Gardner is staring straight ahead. She's about to run the third leg of the race. So Allison Felix is kind of the middle leg. This is when you can really put some distance between yourself and the other teams that are running with you. And as I mentioned, these women went on to win a gold medal. Allison Felix, this was her 11th gold medal. So she bested Carl Lewis, one of the greatest Olympians in history, to finish as the most decorated track and field Olympian in American history. It was an amazing moment. And this is not unlike the moment that is happening in today's text. Moses and Elijah, not equals with Jesus, are showing up and they're handing the baton to Jesus. They're saying, you carry forward this movement of God. You bring freedom to people now. The time has come. The time has come. Every one of us is sitting in this room because someone came up to you at some point in your journey, and they said to you, Joe, the time has come. You need to know about Jesus and his love for you. Tyler, the time has come. Here's the baton. You need to go teach middle school kids. Faith, you need to go teach middle school kids. The time has come. Someone passed along the faith to you. You didn't wake up one day and think to yourself, like, I'm going to follow Jesus today. I mean, Jesus could do that, certainly, but if that's been your experience, I'd love to talk to you. I have yet to encounter people that have had quite that experience. Someone handed off to you the baton, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the freedom to live as he intended, to no longer live as a slave to sin. Who was that person for you? Just ponder for a moment. Who handed the baton to you? What were they like? How did they treat you? How did you know that they loved Jesus and they wanted you to love Jesus too? Was it a parent, a grandparent, someone in your church? Someone handed you the baton. Maybe you've dropped the baton. Happens a lot in track and field. Maybe you went through a period in your life of discouragement, of deconstruction, of asking very hard, very important questions about your faith. Maybe you're picking the baton back up today and you're saying, you know what? 
I know who I gotta hand the baton off to, it's my kids, or it's my neighbors, or it's my colleagues at work. Who are you being presented with the opportunity now to hand that baton, to invite them into a journey with Jesus Christ? Just as you have received the baton from others, so are you and I, church, called to hand it off yet again. Who might that be? Who do you hope that would be? The baton was handed off to me through both my parents, faithful people who showed up and took us to church and invested in our lives, but primarily through uh, my mentor, Trey, who I texted this week as I was writing this sermon, and I said, Trey, thank you for being faithful to me. Thank you for being faithful to Jesus Christ. If you can think of the person who helped hand that baton to you, I would encourage you to reach out to them this week. Just say, hey, we were talking about this in church, and I just want to say thank you. It'll remind you of your own calling to continue this. It'll remind you that all it takes is just simple acts of faithfulness to show up for one another. These two women practiced over and over and over and over again, handing off that baton, and they won a gold medal. Allison Felix became the most, one of the most decorated Olympians in history. It's a glorious moment. This is no disrespect to these two women, but it pales in comparison with the glory of Jesus Christ that each of us has the opportunity to reveal to others. Would you join me in praying over the next couple of weeks? Not, yes, for Easter, but even beyond that. That we would be a church that's continually looking for the opportunity to hand off that baton, to invite people into the conversation around the person and work of Jesus. That is tying ourselves to the past and the tradition that has been handed to us, and it is aiming us, focusing us on the future. And that's what's happening here. I want to touch very briefly on this. Uh, I'm going to skip this part and go to the future section. So listen to this. This is where Peter and James and John are invited into something extraordinary. Remember, Jesus takes Peter and James and John with him. They're witnesses to this moment when Elijah and Moses show up on the scene. So Elijah and Moses are there. Peter has had his kind of blurting out moments of, oh my gosh, we should build a place to live and this is going to be great. And he just responds so off the cuff and it's such a wonderful moment. And then this happens. Then a cloud overshadowed them, all of them, surrounded them. And from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Say that with me, church. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. The exact same thing was said of Jesus at his baptism in Mark chapter 1. That is no accident. These words are being said yet again to remind the disciples of who is with them. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. The baton has been handed. But it's not done being handed off just yet. Elijah and Moses have handed it to Jesus, but those three men that are there with him, Peter, James, and John, they'll have their own moment to receive the baton. Jesus has to go to the cross. He has to be killed. He has to be buried. And then the day that he is raised, a new opportunity arises For these men and women who follow Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, the opportunity is there to receive it yet again. This is the movement of the church. The Holy Spirit is poured out over the community of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. The baton is lifted into a new community's hands. And they're going to change the world. And Peter and James and John have no idea that they're going to change the world. They have no clue. 
They are three ordinary men. There's 12 uh, total, but they don't know what's about to happen. All they know is is they're following this man, Jesus, and yet Jesus' vision is that the Roman Empire and all of its oppressiveness and all of its anti-humanity and its violence and evil and pain would go away. And it would be replaced by the kingdom of God. And Jesus' vision is that the poor would be cared for and that people who are discarded and left behind would have a home and have a place where they belong. And these men have no idea that they're about to be entrusted with that leadership, and they're not prepared for it. Every one of us has the opportunity to step into this tradition that began in this moment. This, this is our future. This is what we need to be thinking about and praying for as a church community. Someone needs to pick up this baton and keep running with it. We need to carry forth this message of Jesus into the world. And you know what the key is? This is not a tactic. This is not a trick. The key is those last two words. Because who did they see at the end? Who did they see after this miraculous moment? Who did they see after interstage right, Elijah and Moses? Who did they see? It is only Jesus. Say that with me. It is only Jesus. Church, my commitment to you as your pastor, our commitment as a group of churches with Bethany Community Church, our focus is that. It is only Jesus. Only he will be the foundation of our future. Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock and upon this rock I will build my church. He is our foundation. Not Peter the man, but the one that Peter serves. If you're dreaming of a future for our church, where we are ministering to other people, where we are participating in acts of mercy and justice, where we are teaching the faith to our kids, where we are envisioning changing the neighborhood around us, look no further than Jesus. It is very easy for us to try to plan and kind of scope out what it might be, and I'm all for having plans and visions and all these things, but I want to tell you, as a leader in our church, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that the group of people who are entrusted with leadership, myself, the staff, and our leadership team, we want only Jesus to lead us. We want only Jesus to be in front of others. We want only Jesus' name to be proclaimed. We want only Jesus again and again and again. And if you're dreaming about your own future, the future you want for your family or for your work or for your children, would you just take a moment with me now and just pause and ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want? I got all kinds of ideas, but what is your dream for us? I bet you Peter and James and John really needed that in the moment. So let's just pause for a sec and just close your eyes and say, Jesus, what is your dream for me, for my church, for your future? After all these miraculous events, after the feeding of the 5,000, after walking on water, Jesus could have rested on his laurels, said, I've shown you enough, I'm good. There was much more that he had to do. There were many more people that needed to hear of his miraculous ability to heal and to touch and to shape people's lives. And this same Jesus is asking you, church, to join him. To have an eye out for the least and the lost. To not be afraid. 
to have courage. Where is he drawing you? Who is kind of being pressed into your heart right now as you think about handing off the baton? When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he was greeted as a conqueror, as a a coming king. It was a glorious entrance that, again, we'll hear about next week. And the way that he responded to that to me is so powerful. He didn't respond to it by creating a big event or selling tickets. He invited his intimate friends to join him at the table. And so that's what we're going to do now. In response to the message that we've heard, in response to the scriptures, we are going to gather at table as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So please join me as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize this is your table. It's not ours. It doesn't belong to me or to any one person. This is the table of Jesus where you are the host. So as we come forward in just a moment to receive these elements, would you prepare our hearts? Would you set aside this time? As we have heard the word proclaimed, may we now enact the word as we come forward and receive from your bounty. Would you set aside this bread and this juice for your glorious purposes? We ask in your name. Amen.